Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Another winter, another strike. Except this time, longer than any other in the NHS's history. Patients and health leaders are bracing themselves. Junior doctors say they have no choice. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. A report from Sky News there on a long ongoing strike, a feud between the government and young doctors, the young doctors believing their working conditions and salaries are not sustainable. The erosion of doctor salaries is stopping more people choosing the career or heading off overseas, leaving those that are left to cope with an increasingly desperate situation with long hours and expanding backlogs. So why won't the government fix it? They say it's because the young doctors are asking for too much. But are they? Really? That's this week on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, junior doctors are not someone who is fresh out of college. Some of them actually have got more than a decade of experience, and they're so probably not actually that young anymore. They've completed their foundation training, but they haven't qualified to practice independently, either as a GP or as a specialist. So that can take uh, another eight years after two years of foundation tra- training. So in fact, about half of all doctors, not quite half, but almost half, are young doctors. I think the proportion is actually getting less because we are getting less young doctors because they're not getting paid enough. So how much do young doctors get paid? Well, not enough, they say, which is why they've been on strike. But they're also concerned not just for their own income, but the fact that there's not enough new doctors coming into the system to be able to cope with demand because the pay isn't enough. Well, in the first year of foundation training, they're earning about £32,000. If they are six to eight years into their speciality training, then they're probably up to 56000 now, tube drivers, by comparison, I mean, they do have to train for six months. I'm not quite sure what that six months entails uh, other than, oh, look, here's a station stop. Uh, they get <laughs> about 50,000. So young doctors, 32,000 uh, when they're training, uh, going up to 56,000 when they're almost at the point of becoming a specialist. Tube drivers, 50,000. Doesn't make a great deal of sense, does it? So once a young doctor is qualified as a GP, they're on a pay scale, according to the NHS, of between 69,000 and 104,000. But specialists like surgeons obviously can earn a great deal more. Uh, so, so, I mean, they have been. So, I mean, first of all, just looking at those rates of pay, Steve, does that make sense to you? Are they earning enough, do you think? No, they're not. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I saw a few of you two jokes recently about the attitude surgeons have to themselves. You know, uh, how do you treat somebody who, uh, who believes he's actually God? Treat him like a surgeon. Um, but that <laughs> reflected what I'm used to in terms of both Australian salaries and American salaries in particular for doctors which in Australian case, I think they're quite reasonable for the amount of training they go through. When I heard the salary that's being paid to young doctors out here, I almost choked on on my Indian meal at the time because it was about half what I thought they'd be earning because there's so much 
training in becoming a doctor. You have six years, as at least the Australian experience, six years of being in medical school. Uh, then you have, as you're saying, another six years uh, as, a, as a trainee doctor, another two years after that. So it's about 14 years before you start getting into the field where you could be a surgeon and so on, or uh, working at a GP, what should be a fairly well-paid activity. And the salaries were just didn't reflect the number of hours you reflected to do or the difficulty of the training. And this is yeah. what... Well, a junior, junior doctor salary in Western yeah. Australia mm -hmm. is 85000 So it's still not, you know, massive. 85000 for a junior doctor, uh, but 85000 is about £45,000. So that's a bit more than 32000 which is what... And the, I uh, might add, so, I mean, this is the other thing. I got caught by this myself when I moved to the UK because I was earning 170000 as a professor uh, at, in an Australian university and to become head of school at Kingston, uh, I, they asked me, what did I accept? And I said, well, no less than what I'm earning here as a professor. So I go from a professor, you know, top of the academic hierarchy, but no, I had no administrative role. I wasn't running a department at all. Here I found myself supposedly running three departments. I did a very bad job, I might add, because uh, it wasn't my thing to be an administrator. Three departments, mm -hmm. 45 staff reporting to me, and my pay rate was the same. But then when I went shopping, I found that the effective exchange rate was about 40% off, and I was actually earning in real terms, 40% less than I was getting back in Australia. And I bumped into two friends of mine from a Queensland university. I asked them what they thought about living in London and their faces both dropped and they told me exactly the same calculation, roughly 40% worse off. So on that basis, mm. the 80,000, uh, you know, converting to, you know, 50, was it 50,000 or so UK, you'd have to make it 120,000 before the difference was well, comparable seriously. I don't know. So I do, no. uh, well, yeah. If you, unless of course you uh, have a mortgage, uh, in which case, completely turn that around because you know what house prices. Oh, the are like mortgage is so. ludicrous. Yeah. Okay. But but yeah. like, I don't think many young doctors have a, have a mortgage here anyway. They can't afford to. So what what throws yeah. me is that being a doctor was often seen as the pinnacle of employment you could gain from your brains alone. Maybe not your personality, mm. but your brains. And here I was seeing yeah. people being saved salaries, which were lousy. And as you say, if you wanted to make, if your sole motivation was making money, you'd become a train driver yeah. here, yeah, not yeah. a doctor. So their argument, the young doctors, the reason they've gone, gone on strike is because they have fallen behind. The BMA, British Medical Association, said there has been a real-term pay cut of about 30% since 2008. So first-year salary, uh, junior doctor salaries, have gone from 28000 to 32000 So if you put that 28000 back in 2008 into the Bank of England inflation calculator, 28000 in 2008 comes in at 43515 today, but they're on 32000 So mm -hmm. they should get a 36% pay rise, actually, to get them back in terms of real time, uh, real terms to the, to the wage they ran in 2008. So they have a really good point on this, don't they? Extremely good point. And actually, you did another personal experience way back when I was in my late 20s, I think. I was, uh, again, this is a dating story, dating a woman whose sister was a trainee nurse. And they, the, the, what happens with people in those professions is they, they, they have a strong moral sense towards their the, the, the people they're taking care of, their patients. And that restrains them on going on strike. And unless you have a, a 
beneficent uh, administration, administrations take advantage of them and don't give them the pay rises. Now, the nurses were being treated as mm. though, well, you're living back at home with your parents, you don't have any particular cost, you're learning anyway, you're just a student. And their pay rate was dreadful. And they finally had all they could take and went on strike. And the pay rise they won, this is back in the late 1970s, early 80s, I think, was a 72% pay rise. And they've bloody well deserved it. And I feel the same way about the, the doctors in this, uh, in the UK situation. They've been taken advantage of because they, they weren't, they, you know, their, their personal commitments to their patients means they don't go on strike. They don't demand pay rises. They've been ripped off by it. They're miles behind. It's about damn time the government let them catch up. The, bad, the sad thing in all of this is, though, if we argue that case that they should have that 36% pay increase, which maybe could be, uh, you know, introduced over, over a few years rather than all in one slug the big problem is if you follow exactly that same logic and you take the standard salary for a backbench mp over that same period their pay has gone from 60 65,700 to 86,500 so allowing for inflation it should actually be 102,000 so if we are going to give a 36 pay increase 36 percent pay increase to young doctors uh, we should probably also be giving mps an 18 percent pay increase well would we be prepared to do that? Well, actually, some people might say, well, maybe we should. We might get a better standard of MP. Yeah, I mean, I remember um, seeing some of the... I mean, I haven't got quite the same sympathy for politicians that I have for, for doctors and nurses. <laughs> Funnily enough. It's kind of strange, though, isn't it? But yeah. I remember seeing one uh, parliamentarian talking about the chaos between, you know, Prime Minister number 7 and 7 and 12 and the Tories in the last 14 years of their rule, and he made at one point, there's no, no, no more unemployable thing than an ex politician. And I thought, actually, that's a damn good point. Because if you've signed up with a particular political party, and then bang, they lose the election, uh, you know, the, the job offers you used to get uh, suddenly evaporate, and you're left in the lurch, and you've got to try to find yourself back into the into a workforce or some other uh, form of income earning. Um, and it, it's, it's a hell of a uh, you know, it, it's a dislike, a huge dislocation. So, because the the time at which you're likely to be a successful politician is much shorter than people's normal careers would be, there's a justification for them being paid more. Uh, I'd equally like to get rid of politicians altogether and go for sortition, but that's another story. Go for what? Sorry, <laughs> sortition. Because we think we think we're based on the. If I asked you what was the what was the foundation of our political system, democracy, where does it come from? What's well, your automatic answer? Oh, Greece. But I mean, and it yeah. goes back further okay. than that. Of course. Now, what Greece actually had was they didn't they 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 didn't vote. They they had a system by which a bunch of people were asked a bunch selected a bunch of people selected another bunch of people did another bunch about fourteen bloody times and by the end of it, it was a random number generator to select you know with some limitations in terms of range representative citizens of the Greek Greeks uh, Athens the, the uh, city state and that meant you didn't get egotistical twerps like uh, Boris uh, what's his Johnson. name Johnson Boris Sunak Boris Sunak uh, well you can tell you bro, that's a, like a uh, hybrid there were, that's no, a, that's a, but but there's a, there's a love child that we don't want to hear about. So, um, yeah, Boris, Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak. But, mm. but what do you get? You get egotistic, you get narcissistic twerps well, that's both of them. Uh, being chosen to run the country, the, and that applies around the globe, uh, rather than people who are representative of the, of the country in which they're in, which is supposed to be the basis of democracy. So a random number generator choosing who gets to be there would be damn sight better. And then again, you'd be justified in paying them a large amount of money relative to uh, normally salaries 
because they've only got a short time they're going to be in office. Yeah, or maybe, well, maybe just like jury duty in that case. You know, you just get called up and uh, told yeah. that you're going to be the prime minister next month. Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, it doesn't matter how much we pay MPs if it is purely for ego, does it? Because they're doing it because they want to push an agenda rather than uh, doing it for money. If they're not doing it for money, then uh, then who cares? But I mean, there, there, there is that point, isn't there, about mm. if, if, if young doctors are not getting paid enough and there's a shortage of young doctors because they're not getting paid enough, then we should be using, you know, the capitalist system, shouldn't we, given that, you know, the government is very much for a free market. The free market would determine that the rate that they get paid should be the rate that is required to fill up all the jobs. Yeah, and this is one of the weaknesses of a public system run by people who don't understand public accounting, uh, which is most politicians, that they strangle the finances because they think they're going to run out of money, which they can't do because they create the bloody stuff. Um, and therefore, they starve the, the public services like you know, medicine, like even going back to our early comment, back to the, the tube system as well. You get lousy service and people say, this would be better off as it privatized. And then you end up with a privatized system like America has in health where it costs twice as much and it's half as effective. Mm. So uh, it's it's a double double whammy. Uh, you, you don't you want to have things being run by a public sector because they should be a public good. That's the way the NHS was first established. But they're run by people who don't understand public finances and they destroy the quality of the system over time. And that's why we're seeing these strikes. Yeah, absolutely. But it seems like it stretches not just from the public sector but into the private sector as well i mean certainly there's something going on here in terms of trying to uh, privatize the health sector i think and i want to explore that a, a little bit more but also just you know um, the amount that is paid in wages seems to be progressively getting lower in both the public and private sector so uh, why is that and what is that doing to the broader economy we'll look at that when we come back it's the debunking economics podcast back in a second one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, uh, I wonder if part of the problem it is not just private doctors who are not getting paid enough or keeping in pay, uh, their wages up in pace with in, uh, with inflation. Of course, you know, very few people have during the pandemic because we've had such high inflation. Uh, but it, if we look over that period from 2008 to today, 
uh, the part of Britain's problem is that everyone is earning less. So average earnings since 2008 have gone from £410 per week to 620 So allowing for inflation on that basis, everyone should be getting at least a 2 to 3% pay increase possibly more. And that's over that long period. If you if you were to look at it over the last 10 years, then that percentage increase is going to be much higher because we have been basically going backwards. So that's not sustainable, is it? Why is that happening? Is it just because bigger companies are squeezing people on wages uh, the longer you stay in a job? There's a whole lot of reasons. I mean, one of the fundamental reasons is that you know that we live in a social. We, we live in a system of social classes. There are capitalists, there are workers, there are bankers, and the power of the workers have been drastically reduced over the last forty years, starting with Maggie Thatcher and in, in, in the UK and and the anti-union sentiment of mainstream economics as well, which regards unions as a market distortion, and therefore we're better off without them. Uh, that attitude has basically weakened the bargaining capacity of workers over time. So wage rises have fallen. And that's partly why we've had lower economic growth as well, because workers spend most of what they get. That was Kolesky's old point. And as you reduce the level of income going to the workers and give it more to capitalists uh, who who get what they spend, they spend less, they invest less, and you get a, a less dynamic economy coming out of it. And this is one reason why not only have wages fallen over time, but even economic growth under the period of neoliberalism is about half what it was under the Keynesian period beforehand, which we were told by neoliberalism fans, they double the hard pay rate, the growth rate, rate of growth in the economy. They've actually halved it. They told workers they'd be much better off in a market system. In fact, they're paralyzed and working in uh, you know, gig economy jobs so they don't dare go on strike because they can be simply replaced by somebody else. None of the insurance, none of the power there. So getting rid of the unions has actually hobbled the economy and hobbled the working class as well. And they're getting a damn sight less income than they would have got if we'd stuck with the union structure that existed before beforehand. We might even, not that I'm a total fan of economic growth, as you know, but the greater growth may have been higher as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, we are in Marx's territory here, aren't we? In that, We are in Marx's. You- we're also in Minsky's territory, just pardon me jumping in there, because one thing which came out of my model of Minsky's financial instability hypothesis that was not built into the model, which I didn't expect to happen, was that rising level of private debt when I, in my model, when I simply had the borrowing being done by capitalists for actual investment, so I didn't have speculation going on and I didn't have households borrowing money. Nonetheless, the social class that paid for that rising level of private debt was the working class. The workers got a lower share of income, more of it went to bankers, and capitalists remained much the same. So the rising level of private debt has also caused this decline in working class income. Yeah. I mean, even if you didn't have that rising debt, uh, and you were just squeezing more out of your workers, then where does that where does that money go? Well, it goes into profits for the company. So the company pays higher dividends. So the money that those workers are working to produce is actually going in dividends to the investors rather than to the workers, which is very much Marxist territory. And also what it means is they you know, capitalists have a lot more money and spend proportionately much more slowly than the the workers do. So shareholders, you know, they might go and buy the the occasional uh, BMW, uh, but they're they're you know they're spending a, f- a fraction of their income compared to what the workers would be with the same amount of money. So you get a lower level of aggregate demand coming out of it. And this again is stock standard non-orthodox post-Keynesian economics, and it's been proven right time and time again. So the general decline in workers' salaries has come about largely because the power structure has shifted against them, and that's been at the behest of mainstream economics. Yeah. So the easy fix for it, of course, is just increase minimum wage, isn't it? One of Which is, uh, te- 
one of the fixes, mm. £10.42 in the UK. In uh, it, it has actually gone up, but I mean, we're talking small bickies, really. So in 2008, it was £5.73. So that's eight ninety in today's prices. So at least that's gone higher than inflation. But, you know, even so, if you work 50 weeks on a 40-hour week on a minimum wage, you'd earn £1,700 a month, which would you could just about afford a one-bedroom flat in Lambeth for that money and still have, wait for it, £100 left to cover all your food, transport and utilities. Uh, so that's more than enough for anyone, isn't per it? Per month. I mean, per month, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's just, you know, mm. the numbers just don't add up on the minimum wage. So the UK minimum wage, yeah, it's £10.42. Australia is a little bit better. Theirs is $23.23. That's about £12.40. So it's 19% higher, but still difficult to get by. I like what they do in Germany, where they specify minimum wage by industry. So it's €13 Euros if you are working for a temporary employment agency. It's 18 euros if for educational staff, 14 euros for unskilled care workers, 18 euros for care workers with qualifications and so on. So uh, it's, you know, uh, it, the, the most basic wage is about 10 percent higher than the UK. And then, you know, as you've got more qualifications or you're in areas where, you know, we have greater need like care workers, then it goes up. Uh, unskilled care workers, care workers, uh, care workers are a good fifty uh, percent higher than uh, the the basic wage in the in the UK. So that is a smarter system, isn't it? Base it on the industry that you're working you, in. Your costs are going to be different depending on the industry sector you're working in. So it makes some sense to acknowledge that in the minimum pay rates. But the the, the, the real story of the declining, the increasing cost of living has really been a declining amount of money going to the majority of the population because the power system has shifted so heavily in favour of capitalists and against workers uh, ever since unions were, were eliminated. And this has had all sorts of negative effects on the economy above and beyond making the, the working class suffer more because one of the motive forces for capitalists to invest in the past was that if they invested, they could replace some labour and labor Labor saving would actually lead to a greater level of, um, of of wealth for the capitalists, but that was the investment itself drove the, the dynamism of the economy. So you got you know potentially a lower rate of technological development coming out of that. Uh, you know, it's just temp temporary gain by the capitalists of, of power relative to workers. And we've, this is part of the reason why we've seen lower economic growth since the days that neoliberalism took over than we saw beforehand when the promise was you get higher levels of economic growth because of the you know distorted way in which conventional economists think about how the economy operates. So it isn't just a cost of living crisis. It's a, it's a lack of bargaining power by workers crisis. Yeah. Well, the government, of course, their argument is that if public sector wages increase, if they allow that to happen, it's going to add to costs and that's going to cause inflation. So there's two sides to this. One is that, uh, you know, their belief that if they if you add to government spending, that is going to be inflationary. So let's look at that in just a second. The other is they're worried about wage inflation, that if you keep on pushing up wages, then that pushes up costs and then we all end up paying for that. But that and that might be fine in a private company. It might be fine for a car maker, for example, if you, if you, if you pay everyone more, that might push up the cost of cars. But that doesn't apply to public services like health because... Nobody is paying for it. It's free at the point of use. So if you pay a doctor more or you pay a nurse more or you pay a care worker more, how is that inflationary? Because it's not pushing up the cost to anybody. Yeah, they, they make distorted arguments about the higher wages costs, meaning they've got to then, you know, um, 
put up taxes, et cetera, et cetera. But it is all a, a, a lack of awareness of how public finances work. Uh, and, and that is what your, your point's quite valid, that this, uh, you know, if you're not actually paying the price, you're not seeing a rise in the cost. What you're getting is a rise in aggregate demand out of the higher wages, which you know, care workers should be receiving that they'd be spending into the economy, or you're not paying anything at all in your upfront costs for the for the medical services. So then you get down to the argument then uh, with the other part of that. Well, okay, but it's it's increasing government spending, and that is, uh, that's point A, uh, which leads to point B uh, over this quantum leap that no one really fully understands. That creates inflation. Uh, so how? What's their argument there? It's, it's not, a, not a quantum leap. It's actually one of my great friends, Matthias Griselli, is a mathematician, a uh, pure mathematician, does a lot of work on my models. Um, Matthias loves the South Park episode where the, I think it's the, uh, the not the elves, but there's some, some group, some group that decides to go and steal, uh, I think the elves decide to go and steal socks or underpants, pardon, steal underpants. There's, there's a three-stage plan. Stage one is steal underpants. Stage two is question mark. Stage three is profit. <laughs> so they don't actually know how to get from one to the other. And that's the same as people thinking about, you know, put up government money creation increases, bang inflation. The causal factor which came out of the uh, the recent COVID uh, inflation and which Isabella Weber has done a very, very good job on and so has Blair Fix and other two non-Orthodox economists. What you got by the increased amount of government money was a perceived lack drop in competition or less competitive forces felt by manufacturers which meant they felt that they could put their markups up. And they're actually markup inflation, of course, and not worker inflation. So this is, you know, you see, and this is the usual story. Inflation's up, bash the workers. In this particular case, you should have bashed the companies. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, of course, governments have been doing, or the UK government has been doing, is uh, is providing less support proportionally to local councils. And local councils have a lot of uh, obligations, particularly in terms of education and teachers' wages and the like. So... If my council has to pay higher wages, well, that could be inflationary, couldn't it? Because if the because uh, because that gets that means that councils have to pay more uh, through or charge more through council taxes through the rates, and that is included. Council rates are included as part of the housing costs in your CPI. So, if the government wants to spend more, uh, it can if it wants either take it as debt. Uh, and we'll, let's not argue about the term this time around. But anyway, they can run further into deficit or they can pass it on through higher tax. That's not counted as inflationary. But if a government wants to bring down inflation, then they could give more to councils so they don't have to cover increasing wage costs by pushing up our rates. Yep. And this and one of the great ironies of the period when Cameron was the prime minister uh, was that he complained about, on his mother's behalf, he complained about the cutting back of library services in her local council. And surely there's something else should be cut to be told by a Tory, uh, of all things, mayor that would already cut all those damn services and all that's left is now is to cut cut the actual uh, the back office stuff and we've got left the cut is the actual services we give to people like your mother it was a wonderful three i think three page letter about the impact of these cuts because a major way that the uk has imposed austerity is by cutting off funding to local government so all of this amounts to more government spending uh, which a lot of people obviously are opposed to if they are Tory supporters because they see that uh, that means to, you know, in their mind, that means higher taxation and that slows the economy. It seems like the natural progression from all of that is private health care, 
doesn't it? Because you get it off the books. Yeah. And you, then, then that raises the question whether the government is running down health services so they are replaced by the, by the private sector. Uh, is that their way out of this? If we, if we don't pay increases to uh, to junior doctors to work in the health service, then other entries entrants will come into the market, pay higher wages, and we'll just outsource the work to those companies. Which destroys the whole concept of the national health scheme. But that's exactly yeah. I think, the direction we're going in, and it's a global thing. I mean, the, the, this is again something which is you know bash the working class politics because. And if, if you don't provide the National Health Service, it's never going to mean that Richard Branson can't get treated medically. The very wealthy can can afford to pay and often just do pay uh, out, you know, out of their own pocket for the high-quality services they want. And what we're talking about with the National Health is what people who can't afford to pay uh, get covered. Now, if you then privatise everything, it has very little impact upon those who can already pay the amounts that they're paying for, you know, High quality non nature non nature services right now. It means the working class and the, the large part of the middle class can no longer afford decent health, and that you know the original idea of the NHS was to make sure that everybody had decent health, uh, so you actually had a well functioning society as well as economy, and that's undermining that very concept. Yeah, and and yeah, you know, if you look to the states as an area where there is you know much more private healthcare provision. Well, they spend twice as much as an aggregate, through public and private, uh, on health in in the United States, and uh, the reward is a, a huge diversity in the provision of health, and uh, on average, a, uh, a lower life expectancy. Much lower. I mean, so it's, 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 more money spent for yeah, well, less return. It's it's, it's mm. a, if you if you want to do an empirical study and say we should have a private health system or a public health system, look at America. It's the most privatized system on the planet, and it's got the worst health comes outcomes at the highest cost. And one of the reasons it's happened is quite bloody obvious. Uh, we, the usual supply and demand thinking that economists use, which is garbage anyway when you apply it to normal commodities. If you've got a, you're facing an operation which is life or death, what's your bargaining power? It's zero, and you pay an enormous amount for it. And the more we privatise, the higher the costs get to be. It doesn't make you more efficient at any stretch of imagination. It's not a level playing field. It's very short short term thinking, though, isn't it? If if the if the government's ideology is, well, if we can pay less in health by getting it more provided by private sector players, and then we get people to pay directly for those private sector suppliers, if that is the end game, so we get those costs off our books, it means people will be paying more ultimately for health, but it means the government can charge less for taxation in taxation. So they can tell themselves, ah, oh, we are a lower taxing country, so therefore everyone's better off. The fact that they have to use a higher proportion of what's left to pay for health than they would have done if they paid tax doesn't seem to matter too much, does it? And this is the usual story. They just don't think in a systemic fashion. They don't understand money creation. Don't under, certainly don't understand their role in money creation. So it's just when it just shows the nightmare you get socially when you have the economy run by people who don't understand how money is created. This is one reason why MMT is such an important thing to get straight because. When you realise you live in a mixed credit fiat system, then you have to ask the question, what's the appropriate level of fiat money creation? And the answer is not negative, but that's what 
running a surplus actually implies. Let's have a credit credit fiat system and let's make sure we destroy fiat money. Hang on a second. There's something wrong with your mind if you think that. And, and look, and if the only concern about creating more money would be inflation, but we've already covered off the fact that if you're using it to pay for services which are provided for free, uh, then that inflation argument where you, you know, are you creating excess demand? Well, you can't have excess demand for health, can you? Unless people are getting deliberately getting sick because they want to go to hospital. Uh, you're not going to have that excess demand factor. Yeah, that's a great idea. Right there. <laughs> it's a fa- fabulous place to go to at the moment. Cough, cough. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, maybe well, it's cheaper than maybe you have to go to hospital because you can't afford to live at home. But one final point on all of this. So the British Medical Association, they do believe, you know, that the government is running down health services that can be replaced by the private sector. They point to the fact that the proportion of spend allocated to non-NHS providers has increased from 8.7% of the total health budget in 2012 to 13 to 11.1% in uh, 2021. So in nine years, it's gone from 8.7% to 11.1%. So the British Medical Association is worried about the sustainability of the NHS because, of course, it's it's not across the board. They are uh, outsourcing the profitable services. So if they get creamed off, and the NHS is left with the stuff that nobody can provide profitably, uh, then you have the worst of both worlds. Yeah, and that's what we're getting. And look, we can see what the worst worst of both worlds is. It's the United States, and there's a classic book. I've forgotten when it was written and the author, but the title was Don't Get Sick in America. <laughs> so that becomes national health, just don't get sick, Yeah, well, it's which get- is great after we've been through a COVID pandemic. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, And then we've got the European Union who are saying that they want uh, they want everyone to get back to 60% uh, debt-to-GDP ratio this last week or so as well, just you know, uh, hot on the heels of the pandemic. Let's make sure there's no government money available uh, uh-huh. to spend to, uh, to get us out of this situation should it occur again. So yeah, it's a cockeyed world, isn't it? Isn't anyway, it? Uh, so young doctors, let's give them, let's give them their support. They need more money. They should have more money, and we need more money going into the NHS. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Good to talk, Steve. We'll uh, catch you next week. And uh, look, let's uh, while we're talking about leeches, government leeches, let's look at another form of leech next week: uh, private equity funds. Oh dear, okay, uh, we'll yeah. do that next week. They'll 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 suck your dry blood for sure. The debunking economics podcast. 